Hi, I'm your host, Sharia, and you're listening to a brand new episode of The Aviation Files, a podcast for all aviation enthusiasts. Today's episode will cover a tribute to the 53rd anniversary of the DC-10's first flight, Lufthansa's CEO working as cabin crew, an update on Air Korea resuming international flights, a recent drone strike interrupting air traffic in Moscow, and finally, a special segment on a bribery scandal in Japan that led to Japanese airlines picking the L-1011 TriStar over other aircraft. Without further ado, let's begin. Before we start, in my last episode, I spoke about how the fires in Maui have affected airlines. Today, I have a short update on airline schedule changes due to the fires. United Airlines, American Airlines, and WestJet have all adjusted schedules to Maui due to the fires. Wildfires have led to reduced services as over 100 people have died and 1,000 are still missing. Fires are 85% contained, none exceeding 2,500 acres. United canceled more than 140 September and October flights, Chicago and Denver routes being the most impacted. American Airlines cut 60-plus flights. LAX to Kahului was the route that was the most impacted. WestJet trimmed Vancouver to Kahului flights by 4,176 seats. Moving on, this month marks 53 years since the McDonnell Douglas's DC-10's maiden flight on August 29, 1970. Almost 400 examples of this three-engine wide-body aircraft were built over a 20-year production cycle, serving as a precursor to the McDonnell Douglas MD-11. The DC-10 featured three main variants, each with its unique characteristics. Today, I want to go over each variant and its pros and cons. The first variant to enter service was the DC-10-10, introduced by American Airlines around a year after its inaugural flight. Powered by the General Electric CF-6 turbofan engines, 122 of these aircraft were produced. The DC-10-10 was the longest version at 55.55 meters, standing at 17.53 meters tall with wings spanning 47.35 meters and an area of 330 square meters. Its range with the typical 270 seat layout and cruising at Mach 0.82 was 3,500 nautical miles or 6,500 kilometers. It also had two sub-variants, the DC-10-10CF, convertible for passenger or cargo use, and the DC-10-15 with more powerful engines. In December 1972, the DC-10-30 variant debuted with Saucere, offering a much longer range of 5,200 nautical miles or 9,600 kilometers. This was achieved through larger fuel tanks, increased fuel efficiency due to a wider wingspan of 50.38 meters and 338.8 square meters in area. The DC-10-30's maximum takeoff weight rose takeoff weight rose to 251,744 kilograms, supported by an extra set of central landing gear. This variant became a favorite, selling 163 units with 27 convertible versions and six extended-range DC-10-30ERs. The DC-10-40 was the final main variant. U- the final main variant used Pratt and Whitney JT-9D turbofan engines. With similar dimensions to the DC-10-30, it was 55.54 meters long and had a range of 5,100 nautical miles, 9,400 kilometers. Notably, the DC-10-40 was chosen by Northwest Orient Airlines for engine uniformity with its Boeing 747s. 42 units of the variant were produced. Despite being such an amazing aircraft, the DC-10 gained a notorious reputation, often referred to as the Flying Coffin due to a series of high-profile accidents that raised serious safety concerns. One of the most notable incidents was the American Airlines Flight 191 crash in 1979. During takeoff, an engine detachment led to the aircraft's loss, resulting in the deaths of all 271 souls on board and two on the ground. 
These accidents, along with other incidents involving cargo door failures and hydraulic system problems, fueled the perception of the DC-10 as an unsafe aircraft. Despite later safety improvements and modifications, the negative reputation stemming from these accidents continued to shadow its legacy. The DC-10's legacy extended beyond passenger service. The KC-10 Extender, based on the 10-30 variant, served as a tanker aircraft for the United States Air Force. A total of 60 KC-10s were built between 1979 and 1987, supporting 386 DC-10s. Though the DC-10 was a workhorse for many airlines during the jet age, it is also remembered for unfortunate accidents as mentioned before, such as the 1974 Turkish Airlines Flight 981 crash that claimed 346 lives. Despite these incidents, the DC-10 left an indelible mark on aviation history, playing a significant role in shaping air travel during the latter half of the 20th century. In the realm of air travel, exceptional customer service can be a game changer, and if you happen to fly with Lufthansa to the Middle East recently, you might have experienced just that, courtesy of the airline CEO, Jens Ritter. Leading by example, Ritter has joined the growing trend of top executives rolling up their sleeves and stepping into the front lines of their operations. The chief of Germany's flagship carrier decided to take an additional role as a flight attendant, providing assistance to the crew on a route bound for Riyadh and Bahrain. Ritter's journey from the boardroom to the cabin provided him with a unique insight into the challenges that the flight crew faces during each trip. Beginning with catering to the needs of business class passengers on the way to Riyadh, he then transitioned to economy passengers for the night flight back to Frankfurt. Through candid photos and a thoughtful link LinkedIn post, Ritter shared his observations and takeaways from this eye-opening experience. While some skeptics might dismiss such endeavors as PR stunts, Ritter is resolute in his commitment to addressing the issues he identified. In response to a commenter questioning the authenticity of his actions, he expressed a genuine desire to rectify concerns, such as discrepancies between menu cards and the actual in-flight meals. Ritter's initiatives follow in the footsteps of other industry leaders who have donned uniforms and taken on frontline roles. Earlier this year, KLM CEO Marjan Rintel was seen personally attending to passengers on a flight between Los Angeles and Amsterdam. Such actions sparked diverse reactions from the public, with some asserting that executives should focus on more strategic matters, while others appreciate the demonstration of hands-on leadership. Joining this CEO in action trend is Sun Country CEO Jude Bricker, who attended flight attendance school before working shifts on the aircraft in 2021. More recently, Air New Zealand CEO Greg Florin was spotted handling baggage, addressing a backlog during a period when the airline faced criticism, criticism for luggage mishandling. Beyond the potential PR benefits, these immersive experiences offer CEOs a valuable form of market research. Engaging directly with customers and crew provides insights that can guide decision-making and strategic planning. Moreover, these interactions have the power to lift spirits, boosting morale among both passengers and the airline's team. In the end, regardless of the initial motives, these instances of top executives engaging in the day-to-day -day operations of their companies can lead to a deeper understanding of the business, more empathetic leadership, and ultimately an enhanced travel experience for all. In my first episode, I did a segment on North Korea's Air Korea resuming international flights for the first time since the pandemic. Today I have a follow-up on that as Air Korea recently flew its first international flight in three years. However, the monumental flight was not without some hiccups. On August 21st, 2023, Chinese authorities announced the approval of flight resumptions to China by Air Korea, the flight carrier and the only airline of North Korea. Commercial flights between Beijing and Pyongyang were set to resume for the first time since the author authoritarian state closed its borders in the wake of COVID-19. 
The much-anticipated flight JS-151 was scheduled to depart from Pyongyang International Airport at around 8.15, with an estimated arrival time of 9.50 at Beijing's Capital International Airport. However, the excitement turned into confusion as the flight was unexpectedly marked as cancelled on the airport's information board. Despite the cancellation, hope wasn't lost. Air Corio announced a new plan. Instead of heading to Beijing, the airline revealed that it would operate two non-stop flight services between Vladivostok International Airport and Pyongyang, using the Tupolev Tu-204 aircraft it has in its possession. The flights were scheduled for August 25th and August 28th. But then, another twist occurred. On August 23, 2023, Air Corio's flight JS-151 successfully arrived at Beijing's capital, Beijing Capital International Airport at around 9.17 a.m., marking the end of a three-year international flight hiatus. Speculation arose that the passengers might be North Koreans stranded in China due to the prolonged border closures. As we reflect on these events, Air Corio's journey stands as a testament to the challenges and uncertainties of a post-pandemic world. Its aging fleet of Soviet-era aircraft and unique geopolitical circumstances continue to shape its operations, leaving us to ponder the airline's future path. Next, we move to Russia to analyze a recent development concerning the airspace above Moscow. On August 22nd, the airspace above Moscow was abruptly shut down due to a Ukrainian drone attack in the nearby town of Krasnogorsk. This incident led to a complete halt in operations at all four of Moscow's airports. The Russian Defense Ministry confirmed the occurrence, stating that two drones were detected and destroyed by air defense systems over the territory of of the Moscow region. Additionally, Russia claims to have taken down two more Ukrainian drones over the Bryansk region, which borders Ukraine. Following the drone attack, the airspace over the Russian capital has been reopened and flights are now back on track. However, the earlier delays continue to impact the day's proceedings. Much like major cities such as London and New York, Moscow boasts several airports with an urban population of 22 million. The Russian capital is home to a network of four airports. Among these, Moscow Sheremetyevo International Airport, SVO, stands out as the busiest, accommodating 22 million passengers last year. This, however, was a decline from the peak of 49 million passengers in 2019, before the pandemic and before the conflict. Sheremetyevo serves as the primary hub for Russia's national carrier, Aeroflot. Presently, its busiest routes include flights to St. Petersburg, LED, Sochi, AER, and Kaliningrad, KGD, with weekly frequencies of 244, 146, and 122 flights, respectively. Notably, some of the delayed flights this morning were a Red Sea Airlines Boeing 737 to Sharm el-Sheikh SSH and an Armenian Airlines Airbus A321 to Yerevan EVN. Moscow Domodedovo Airport, DME, faced more significant disruptions, disproportionately affecting domestic carriers Ural Airlines and S7 Airlines. Domodedovo handled 21 million passengers in 2022. Nukovo International Airport, VKO, the city's third largest airport, dealt with disruptions as well, serving 12 million passengers in 2022. This this airport primarily functions as a domestic hub, with a few long-haul international services, including charter flights by Azure Air to popular vacation spots such as La Romana, LRM, uh, Phuket, HKT, and Zanzibar, ZNZ. Finally, Zhukovsky International Airport, ZIA, the smallest among Moscow's airports, maintains only a few services to regional destinations like Dushanbe, DYU, and Osh, OSS. This incident is just one aspect of the broader impact of the ongoing conflict 
has had on Russia's aviation industry. Sanctions have disrupted deliveries from Airbus and Boeing, forcing airlines to rely on Russian-made aircraft like the Sukhoi Superjet 100 due to difficulties in sourcing spare parts and maintenance parts. Additionally, the conflict led to a significant reduction in international flights, causing a sharp decline in passenger numbers. In response, Russian airlines have expanded their route networks to destinations that currently accept flights from Russia, focusing on regions such as China and India to regain crucial revenue. Finally, we move to our last topic for today, the Japanese bribery scandal that brought customers for the L-1011 TriStar. The Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, a revolutionary aircraft in its time, embarked on its maiden flight in November 1970 and entered commercial service in April 1972. Although the TriStar became a popular choice for airlines like Eastern Airlines, British Airways, and Delta Airlines, its journey into the Japanese market was marked by controversy. This segment delves into the bribery scandal that unfolded concerning the Lockheed TriStar and its pivotal connection with the Japanese carrier All Nippon Airways, ANA. In the early 1970s, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 also entered the scene, capturing the interest of Japanese legacy airline ANA. ANA's announcements of its intention to purchase the DC-10 posed a threat to Lockheed, the manufacturer of the TriStar. Determined to sway ANA's decision, Lockheed engaged in a scandalous affair that would have far-reaching consequences. The scandal's narrative revolves around a man named Bruce Aitken, who found himself entangled in a web of intrigue while working for the De- working for Deacon Company. Aitken's journey began on began on Guam, where he was tasked with delivering what appeared to be innocent golf clubs to a Spanish priest named Father Jose. Unbeknownst to customs officers, these golf bags concealed large sums of Japanese yen notes, with Father Jose acting as a middleman in money transactions. The connection between Aitken and Father Jose acted as a conduit for a significant amount of money, with accounts revealing Lockheed Aircraft Corporation as the ultimate client. This money was earmarked to influence decision makers in Japanese aviation, particularly in ANA. The scandal revealed Lockheed's desperate bid to elevate the TriStar's appeal over the DC-10 and Boeing 747. As part of this endeavor, Lockheed hired Yoshio Kodama, an influential figure with ties to organized crime, to facilitate bribery within state-related Japanese airlines. Lockheed's elaborated scheme eventually bore fruit when Japanese Prime Minister Kakue Tanaka, in collaboration with ANA Chairman Tokuji Wakasa, agreed to ANA agreed to uh, ANA purchasing 21 TriStars in a contract worth over $600 million. This surprising decision shocked competitors like McDonnell Douglas and Boeing. However, this success was short-lived as the scandal's complexity led to arrests and trials of multiple intermediaries involved in the bribery affair. The scandal's monetary dimensions became public, highlighting the extent of the corruption. Lockheed paid a staggering 2.4 billion yen to secure the ANA contract, with significant sums distributed to various individuals. The Japanese Prime Minister received 500 million yen, ANA officials received 160 million yen, and Kodama himself received a substantial 1.7 billion yen. The scandal's aftermath was marked by protests and dramatic incidents. Actor Mitsuyasu Maeno staged a suicide attack on Kodama's home, illustrating the intensity of the public outrage. Kodama was eventually arrested, and Prime Minister Tanaka faced legal consequences, albeit not for bribery. Tanaka was found guilty of foreign exchange control violations, receiving a four-year prison sentence. The Lockheed TriStar bribery scandal remains a testament to the lengths to which corporations and individuals go to secure lucrative contracts. 
The controversy surrounding the ANA deal serves as a cautionary tale about the consequences of unethical practices in the aviation industry. It underscores the profound impact of corruption on both political and economic landscapes of a nation. The scandal may have faded into history, but its lessons about transparency, integrity, and the pursuit of fair competition continue to resonate today. That's all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and thanks for listening. Until next time.